0: In, in two days, this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon, um, I'm supposed to cover all of David. <laughs> no, not really. But I, I sort of feel that way. I sort of want to. But obviously that's just impossible. Uh, I mean, not counting the book of Psalms. Not counting the book of Psalms. If you look at the Old Testament and you know, who are the main characters, who gets the most coverage David is number two. Who's number one? Moses. Moses. Now, I I, kind of like to look a little bit more at Moses. (laughs) Because a whole bunch of what you have with Moses is Moses repeating what God said. You know, it's just a whole bunch, and God said, and God said. It's kind of like, you know, Texans talking about Alaska. Yes. No, I'm, 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 I am, but you know, te- Texans want to, want to tell people in Alaska, uh, people over there in Alaska, you think you have the biggest state, territory-wise, but if you just melt that sucker down, <laughs> you might find out it's not the truth. And, and so I, I wonder if the same is not true about Moses. I wonder if he took away everything that God said from the mouth of Moses and uh, just... About, I, I wondered how close it would be between him and David. But anyway, David is one of the top two characters um, covered in the Old Testament. So, uh, I've picked two ways of coming at David this week. Today, we're going to look at the idea of a king. David is held up as the model <coughs> king, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. There's a whole bunch of... On kingship, and David in particular, as the kind of person you want to be if you want to be a good king. The other thing tomorrow, I was talking to my wife this week, and we were both kind of looking at my me in the mirror and she at me, going, "What in the world were you thinking to talk about David as father?" Uh huh. Because um, yeah, okay. If you want a good role model. I don't know that David is the right person to go to, which in some ways might sound like a contradiction of what we're going to talk about today, which is David as king. How can he be such a great role model as king and yet maybe be such a poor role model as a father? Well, let's save that for tomorrow. (laughs) All right, and today let's focus on David as king. Uh, I'm going to begin and end in 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right, we're going to start here, work our way around, and in the end we'll come back to 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, naturally falls into two blocks. The first half of the chapter, first half or so, first 17 verses, is about David being designated by God God making a covenant with David that David's dynasty would last forever. The second half is David's response. All right, so we're going to end with David's response. But first, this. I think we're all familiar with with this passage. You might not know it's in 2 Samuel 7, which is nice and alliterative, but there it is. All right, so as, as you know, as the story goes, David has finally gotten set up. He's arrived, he's set up in Jerusalem. He has his palace. He's sitting pretty, as we say. And as he's sitting pretty in his house, he calls in Nathan the prophet and says, Hey, there's something wrong with this picture. I've got nice digs and God doesn't. Just like God is, you know, kind of being ignored, marginalized here. We should build him a nice big place of his own. And at first, of course, Nathan says yes, but then almost immediately it says that night he gets word from God saying, I appreciate that, but no. David's son, his seed will do that. But see, I'm not finished with David yet. (laughs) I've been doing all sorts of great things for David. I'm not done yet. I've got to do some more great things. And the greatest thing of all is... What we're doing right now, what I'm doing in David's lifetime, is just the beginning of something that's going to go on forever. We're going to establish David's dynasty forever. All right, you all know the story. Now, how does that fit with a lot of our notions about what God thinks of kingship? I put this question up here. Is God anti-monarchic? How many have heard, thought, or taught that in your life? I'm raising my hand because I have. I, 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 I want to disabuse you of that, or try to, a little bit today. The idea that God does not like the last thing He wants, the one thing you know, one thing He doesn't ever want, what is totally against His will is to have kings. I don't think so anymore. I don't think so. And I'll show I'll you why. All right? Let's do it this way. Let's talk about in the Old Testament how you have, we call it Old Testament, which is another way of saying Old Covenant, but there's really <coughs> a series of covenants in the Old Testament. And David's is sort of the, the crowning <laughs> uh, piece of that. Right, it fits into that. Here's the deal. Here's my quick overview of the history of covenants in the Old Testament. All right? So the story begins, of course, in Genesis, and what we run into in Genesis is a, a creator God who makes the entire universe, the earth, and all that is in it and the crowning achievement of that is supposed to be human beings, but human beings mess things up. We, we have our own free will and we introduce sin into this, which brings in death. So we mess everything up. And what God then does to repair the earth is to choose one family out of all the families on earth, and to bless that family so that then through that family he can bless all families on earth and who's that family whose family is this abraham, abraham. abraham. And we recall this promise this vow that god makes to abraham the abrahamic covenant now in that there's one place at least maybe more but at least one look in genesis chapter 17 if you would genesis 17 this is considered to be the fullest statement of God's covenant promises to Abraham. And down there around verse four or five of Genesis 17, he says, I'm gonna make you a great nation. Maybe verse six. I'm gonna make you this great nation. And what? What about this nation? Anybody there? Do you see where he talks about making a great nation out of Abraham? And kings will come from you. Yeah, kings will come from you. Now, he does not go on to say, He didn't say, I don't want to have kings. I really wish you wouldn't have them. They're the worst idea you'd ever think of, but I'm going to go ahead and let you have kings. That's not what he says. He says there can be this great nation, and kings will come from you. So that tells me that from the very beginning, this was always part of God's plan. (laughs) All right? Uh, Second, he says... This is my summary of it. He says, through Abraham, through your descendants, all people on earth will be blessed. How will they be blessed? How will Israel bless other nations? Now what we as good Christians want to do is we want to jump over, we want to just do a a leapfrog from Abraham and maybe even Genesis chapter 12 and land somewhere in the New Testament. But we're skipping over a lot of history there because... What you have in the New Testament is the culmination, the final version, if you will, of how God blesses. But the first thing he's gonna do, he's gonna start with Abraham, of course. He says, Abraham, look in Genesis 18, he says, I want you to you know, realize that I've chosen you, what? So that you will do justice and righteousness. Genesis 17. All right. Yeah. So the same thing, I think, is supposed to be the purpose of the law. The law is supposed to be the way that the Israelites show others what it is to do justice and righteousness. All right. See, it, it says in Deuteronomy 4 that the people who look at Israel and say, wow, what a, what a wise nation this is. How do they show their wisdom? Wisdom is shown by doing justice and righteousness. That's what the purpose of the law is supposed to be. Now, the fact that some people <laughs> didn't live it out that way doesn't mean that wasn't the purpose. All right? Now, one part in that, if you look in, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17, one of the things he says is, When you get into the land that I'm taking you to, and you take it over, we'll come back to this in a second, but if you want to choose a king, fine. That's the way you want to do it, fine. But here, here are some guidelines about that king. We'll come back to that. But notice, long before they had kings, God is saying, if you want to do that, no problem. No problem. next then, so you've got, first of all I I want you to see there's a connection there's a connection between the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses covenant with Abraham says I'm picking this people so they can bless all peoples, this family so they can bless all families and the covenant of Moses says here's how you do that here are the ways you live in order to do that alright, so how did things work out for the Israelites? They march into the land, they take it over? And as you know, you have the time of the Judges, right? Where the people go back and forth and back and forth, whether they, you know, in keeping the law or not keeping the law, until by the end of the book of Judges, you have this line repeated about five times, four or five times. Chapter 17, 18, 21, the, the narrator telling us stories about what looks like just chaos and evil going on in Israel, every so often he just pauses and says, now, you know, I'm telling you about this, but realize they didn't have kings back then. They were just doing what was right in their own eyes. Now why is he telling us that? That seems to imply, I think, that having kings is supposed to help them, not hurt them, not draw them farther away from God, but draw them closer to God. And I think that's what sets us up for what God says in 2 Samuel 7, why he chooses. See, if God is so opposed to having kings, why does he make an eternal covenant with a king? Okay? So I, I think the, the here's the deal. Yeah. So what he's doing here in choosing David is he wants to establish within the people of Israel, he wants to establish one house that itself will be faithful to God, so that they will then be leaders who lead the people to be faithful to God. That is their primary function. It's not about making them a prosperous nation. It's not about making them a mighty nation. That's God's job. Their God is to bring people, keep people in relationship with God. That's their job. And so the whole business of should they or should they not have kings That's really not the point. You see, if if we get all wrapped up in what is the proper form of government, we are falling into the same trap that the Israelites fell into in the days of Samuel, Saul, and David. They were clamoring to have a king, right? Right? They were clamoring, they were calling for that. They called for Samuel, give us a king. And God says, yeah, go ahead. They're not, Samuel, they're not going against you. They're going against me. What is he saying? What he's saying is, he's not saying it's wrong to have kings. He's saying their motivation for having kings is not in the right place. And we're going to give it a couple of generations for God to show what is the right motivation. The wrong motivation is to think, well, if we just change our form of government, if we just go from tribal league or whatever you want to call it, you know, just a bunch of tribes trying to work together, if you want to go from that to monarchy, that'll fix it. And that's not the point. The point is, will you be obedient to God? And whatever form of government will get you there, let's go with it. Are you with me? Yeah. See, and and I feel like sometimes we get all wrapped up into that in one way or another. We think, if we just change this church program, if we change the way we do worship in this way or that way, if we change our education at church from this to that, if we change our church schedule, are we going to have the service first and the class second, or the class first and the church and the service second? Oh, one of those ways will just be the magic bullet so that then we'll be a vibrant church. And I I think he's saying, no, no, that's not what is at the core. What's at the core is your relationship to God. And whatever in your time, in your place, in your culture will get you related to God in a faithful way, that's what you need to go with. So he chooses one family to do that, the family of David. So David then is going to be held up as this great role model for what he, I'm trying to think of the right words here, what he does officially. How he carries out his official duties as king. And they refer to this several times. Uh, Notice here in in 1 Kings, of course this is after David. David's story, he starts off getting up to being king in 1 Samuel. serves as king, sits as king in 2 Samuel, and then after that you get all the other kings. So there's half a dozen times here where as they're talking about, the writers and kings are talking about other kings, about half a dozen times they make a comparison between that king and the model king, King David. What is it that makes King David the model king? that he could have an affair with somebody else's wife and get away with it. No, of course not. No, It's that he, that David, kept the people worshiping one and only one God. He never allowed anyone to build an altar and offer sacrifices (coughs) to any other God. That's what they hold up. And so the later kings, they'll say, you know, so was this king a good king? Yeah, he was a good king, but not as good as David. Why? Well, he told people to worship God, but he also allowed them to worship at high places, not just in Jerusalem. See, something that allowed them to take their focus off of the one true God and his one place of worship. And so the ones that are really held up as good kings, there's two in particular, Hezekiah and Josiah. There you are. Uh, look at 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 2 for Josiah. Those guys are the best of all kings because they are just like David in what they do in terms of worship, in whom they worship and where they worship. You see, that? that's the official function, the official responsibilities of the king, all right? So it's okay to have kings as long as what the kings do is promote wholehearted devotion in worship to the God of Israel. Okay, so let's, some other official responsibilities, if you will, We just do some of these very, very quickly. I mentioned Deuteronomy 17 characterize these for you very quickly. You can, if you write these down, we can look them up. Deuteronomy 17, it says, okay, you know, maybe you want to have a king? Fine. Just be sure that he doesn't put himself above everybody else, think he's better than everybody else, just as long as he's not in it for his own financial gain, you know, buying and selling horses or chariots or something like that. But instead, what does he do? The main thing is He writes a copy of the law of Moses for himself, and he meditates on that day and night. That's the most important. (coughs) Wow, that he reads his Bible every day. That's Deuteronomy 17. Second Samuel five, I, I love second Samuel five, verse 12. David has just taken over Jerusalem, he's moved in, there's a palace that's been built for him, and it says as soon as he gets there, What thought comes to his mind? God has set up his kingdom. God has made sure that he arrived. And how does he think about that? God has done this. God has established his kingdom, his administration. Why? For the sake of God's people Israel. In other words, he recognizes what he's doing. The the privileges that he's enjoying the high status that he now has, is not for him. It's for him to be used by God for a, a great purpose with his people. And Of course, that purpose, if it's God's people, is to lead them to follow the law of Moses. All right, so you got that there. And what, what happens in chapter eight? Chapter eight. You never read this one. You'll never hear a sermon on this one because this is one of those boring lists, okay? David has just won some more victories over enemies. And then it says what? David does justice and righteousness. And immediately follows that by telling you who he appoints to his cabinet. This guy became the secretary, this guy became the scribe, this guy became the head of the fine, you know. Who's the secretary of defense? Who's the secretary of the interior? what does that have to do with justice and righteousness? That's the way that they explain what it is to do justice and righteousness. It's to put the right people in place so that they will do what he's doing. Promote the law. Promote adherence to the will of God expressed in the laws so that they will be a blessing to others. So that the nation we'll be blessed. That's what's going on in chapter 8. Do you know about Psalm 72? I've got to turn to that one. I love Psalm 72. It's described, the, the heading for it is this is a Psalm of Solomon. I believe, let me make sure, yep, Psalm of Solomon. But this is the Psalm four kings. Four kings. He says, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring people to bring prosperity to the people. May the hills bring the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush oppressors and on and on it goes. You see, that's what a king is supposed to do, justice and righteousness. And that means bringing prosperity to the land. And that means undoing oppression, relieving (coughs) hardship that people have. That's a part of his official duties. And then if you look in Jeremiah 23 or Ezekiel 37, here you have a time of exile after the, the, the kings are about to be cut off by the Babylonians. And they say, oh man, we can't wait for the day when God is going to restore the kingship of the the house of David so that once again we will have a great shepherd to lead us. Once again, we will have someone who will do justice and righteousness in the land. That's that's what they long for. The, The fact that the kings stopped doing that is just a sign of how they lost sight they lost sight oh no I just think no no I must do that tomorrow. yeah so anyway, uh, we, we can talk about the, the performance of the different kings uh, through the centuries. Anyway, question so far I'm about to move to part
1: two um. yeah. David. Just going back to their motivation comment mm-hmm. that you made, because the text says that part of their motivation was the fact that they wanted to be like other nations. Is mm-hmm. that what you meant by their motivation was in the wrong place? Yes, okay. yes. And, and we'll
0: say a little bit more about that because I want to talk about the contrast that the text makes between David and Saul. Okay. And, I, and I think that's, it's getting at your question there. What does it mean to be like the nations?
1: Okay. My second question is just, you talked about it was part of God's will becoming kings. Um, Would it be fair to say that some of God's will is based on the fact that he knows what choices we're going to make, and therefore find that here is just, was that part of his will based on the fact that he knew his people would want this king? Yeah, and I
0: think it's also, he knew that they would want this king because that's what you had in that kind of culture. Okay. Yeah, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in every single culture throughout all of history, the kings are the way you have to go. Right. Okay. And and that's why I'm trying to make the point: is it's not about the form of government; it's about what they say is in the heart of the leaders. Okay. So you know the the form that you take really is of secondary importance. It's, it's whatever th- that that'll. <clears throat> be determined by your culture, the size, the number of people you have, different complexities or whatever. I'd have to get a social scientist and political scientist and a few other scientists around here. People actually know what they're talking about to uh, discuss those things. Okay. So the second side of this, and I think the more important side is. If you notice what the, the biblical writers are doing here, yeah, they're they're accepting that yeah you have kings and nations around us have kings, but what makes us different? What makes our king different so that we will be a different people? So we're going to be a nation. We're going to have borders like everybody else. We're going to have government. We're going to have laws. We're going to have you know um, the things you have in countries, right? what makes ours different so what they do is in the case of David they push us deeper they they show us that there's something more than just how well do you do the things of government to what is in literally what is in the heart of your leaders which then is something that you're supposed to be following So you don't praise the institutional format that you have. You praise the character of the people. Because that's what God is about. God is not an institution. God is a person. God is a person. And we're supposed to be in relationship with him. So if the kings Personal relationship with God is what is of utmost importance, and that's what we see in David. So let's see. Gotta go through his. First of all, <laughs> look at First uh, Samuel 12. Here we are at the transition point between having judges as leaders and having rulers, rulership by kings. Right. Uh, if we had some more time, I'd show you how the text really sets off this time period, and this is a transition that's going on, and chapter 12 is the culmination of that. In this, Samuel, the prophet, let's say he wears three hats. He's raised as a priest, he becomes a prophet, and then he also serves as a judge. He is a, the 13th and final judge in Israel. And what he does is he anoints, he appoints the first two kings. So he's handing the baton from judges to king. And this is the point where he's doing it. There's a big meeting. He's telling everybody, okay, we used to do this by judges. You said you wanted a king. Okay, here's the king whom God has appointed for you. Remember that. God has appointed for you. All right? So here's the deal. Very simply, how are we going to work this? How is this going to work? Well what's going to be determined by is what is going to be the character of your king and your people. If you fear the Lord, if you serve the Lord, if you obey the commands of the Lord, if you follow the Lord, wonderful. And if you don't, watch out. It's as simple as that. Simple and as difficult as that, right? And then a few verses later, about 10 verses later, he comes back to this and says, okay, I had my say. Now, final word, final word. Here's what you got to do. Fear the Lord, serve the Lord with all your heart, remembering, noticing, seeing what he has done for you already. In other words, in response to God's great love and mercy on your behalf, you, in response, must fear and serve him. That's it. So it's an interesting exercise then to go through Saul, David, Solomon, and then other kings and see what it is that God does for them first and then see how do they respond to that. How faithful are they in their responses. It's a great way to look at the text, I think. All right? Just in case you want to try that sometime. So here's what God says he wants in a king. We all know this story. It's the first time that we have a little hint that a David is coming. We don't he doesn't name him yet, but we've all read ahead. We cheated and read you know. And we know who he's pointing to. This is where Samuel rebukes Saul, the prophet rebukes the first king for not following. God's instructions. We'll come back to that in a sec. But in this, he says God is mad at you. Because why? Because God is looking for a man after his own heart. And that guy's going to replace you. Now, here's what does that mean? What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart?
1: His choice
0: or his choosing?
1: Yeah, his choice. That's right somebody who genuinely desires to do what he wants. There
0: you go. See? And and the text tells us that. If you look at it, there's just two verses here. If I were getting really technical, this is verse 14a where he says a man after God's own heart. If you look at verse 13 and you look at verse 14b, you'll see that twice what he says as a contrast, he says Saul... What you've done is you have not kept the Lord's commands. And so God is going to replace you with a man after his own heart because you did not keep the Lord's commands. So there's a the contrast. Someone who keeps the Lord's commands is a man after God's own heart. Again, as simple and as difficult as that is. All right. So that, that's what they hold up. A man after God's own heart. Someone... Who will keep the Lord's commands. Now let's notice then how uh, Saul fails. Saul fails. All right. And I, we were just there's two stories there. We were just looking. I just mentioned 1 Samuel 13. Do I need to refresh your memories? That's the story where Saul was getting ready to face off against the Philistines. Uh, Samuel said, okay, give me a week I've got to take care of some things back home that the wife wants I don't know what it is (laughs) something to take care of, after a week I'll come I'll offer a sacrifice, then I'll start the battle Saul says, hey, it's day seven he's not here alright, so that's one story, the second story is in chapter 15 where God commands Saul, go and attack Amalek, the Amalekites or Amalekites Pronounce it a different way. But go and attack them and do to them what Joshua did to everyone before. Of course, Saul goes, he wins, but oh man, they got a bunch of good sheep there. We can use those. And he doesn't fully follow what God says. Alright, so here this is the second story. God had given him, through Samuel, had given him these instructions given the word of the Lord. That's what you do through a prophet. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet, and then he delivers it to who's supposed to hear it. So Saul had received the message, but he didn't follow through. Now, at, at first, when, when I, I love this, it says when he, when he comes up after the battle, Samuel greets him, says, how are you doing? And the first thing out of Saul's mouth is, hey, look, I followed the commands of the Lord. I did what God told me to do. And Samuel's response is, well, what are all of these sheep that I'm hearing? They have Amalekite accents. (laughs) Where did they come from? Saul's response is, oh, well, you know the people, they wanted to do that. but, but, But I did what God said. And Samuel says, no, you didn't and he presses him and presses him, and finally Saul has to admit, you're right, I violated the Lord's command. All right? Now, I mean, think about it. Here, Saul is a successful king, successful in battle. You think, oh, he's being rewarded by God, right? How do you know when a king is really the kind of king he's supposed to be? Is it by his successes? Not necessarily. It's by his obedience. So why does Saul not do what God says? Because he's afraid. He's a scaredy cat. Who's he afraid of? The people. His own people. He's in it for the votes. He's in it for the popularity. He wants people to like him. You know? Why do they like him? He's a big guy, right? You know, you pick him because he looks the part. They'll follow him. They need somebody to lead them into battle. But hes, a, he's a, he doesn't have courage. Because he doesn't rely on courage. God. What does he say in the first one? He says, we were ready for the day of battle. It looked like it was going to come. The people were waiting for me to give the order. And when I'm not giving the order because I'm waiting for you, Samuel, it's your fault. Because I'm, I'm having to wait for you. I'm having to wait on God's timing here. See? The people are leaving. They're scattering. We're going to lose. And so I, I, I had to get God's Approval. So I offered to sacrifice myself. And what you're supposed to think is an act of faith. The offering of sacrifice is actually motivated by fear. All right. The second story. Again, why does Saul not do what God says? He's afraid. He's afraid. You know. The, The people want to do this. They're all clamoring to have these sheep and things. Maybe it's going to help them, you know, enrich their own flocks or feed them or whatever. He does it because it's the popular thing to do. Do what people want rather than what God wants. So this is where you have the famous line from Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice. And that word obey in Hebrew is actually the word hear. See, obedience for the Hebrews at its core is listening to God. And Saul, his attitude is like, yeah, I heard what God said, but he can't really mean what he just said. You know, he didn't know, well, whatever. All right, so there's, there's Saul, there's Saul. So notice this now. Again, the people wanted kings, they said to fight our battles for us. And so they have this image in their minds of what a king should look like and be like. And Saul looks the part. Saul looks the part. So they're, they're looking for size. They're looking for what's going to be intimidating to our enemies. Who's going to stand up and let them know what's what? And who's going to enrich us, right? Who's going to bring us prosperity? But they're looking to the man to do that rather than looking to God to do that. They're forgetting what Joshua taught them, what they, the lesson they should have learned in their youth as a nation, which is, You go up and you fight nations. They're bigger than you. They're more powerful than you. They're uglier than you, which means they're meaner than you, which means they're going to beat you, except for the fact you got got God fighting on your side. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. And they forgot that. They're thinking it depends on the, the people rather than on God. Now, notice that even Samuel falls into this Category. Samuel the prophet, a, 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 one of the devotionals I've written, I forget which one. I think it's the last one. He gets into this. Okay. You'll see it on Friday. But when when Saul anoint, when Samuel anoints Saul, he says, "Look, folks, here's the king. Right? This is what you were looking for. Look how big he is." And then, as Randy was talking about last night, notice <laughs> when, when uh, Nathan, <coughs> I'm sorry, when, when Samuel goes to anoint David, God only tells him, you're going to anoint a son of Jesse. So he goes to the house of Jesse, and what does he think? The first thing he sees is the oldest brother, the biggest guy, I'm I'm thinking, he's probably been taking steroids or something, you know. He's really pumped himself up here. And Samuel says, this has got to be the guy, right? This is your guy, huh? He looks like a king, right? And this is where God says, one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible, do not look on his height. Amen, amen. amen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because what? God looks on the heart. Whether he looks the part or not does not matter what matters is where his heart is with God. Because it is God who gives the victory. And the king who keeps that forefront in his own heart will be God's man on earth. So he's much more, they're interested in physical size. But the text says, immediately after David is anointed, what? David got bigger? David grew up? (laughs) No! From that point on, the Spirit of the Lord was on him. So what you have here, I see is, when you look for a leaders, are we using human eyes to judge the leader, or are we using God's eyes to assess a leader, a potential leader, if we're choosing one? Or if we are a leader trying to live out <coughs> our life, how are we judging how well we are doing? What are our criteria? Now, notice how David, in our first big story about David, notice how David shows a different way of looking at things, all right? story of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 13. If you look at these verses, I'm going to do this very, very quickly. All right? The, the, the main part for me comes here in verses 33 through 47, Okay? David says, hey, who's gonna fight this guy who's defi- defying, mocking, making fun of the one true God that we worship? I'll, I'll fight him. And what does Saul do? Well, you're gonna go out and fight somebody. You, you gotta have the right armor. I got some here. You gotta have a good spear. You gotta have a good sword. You know, haven't you ever seen a war- you gotta have good weapons, you've got to have good training. David says, no, this doesn't fit me. David's response is, look, I'm just a kid, but I've already fought off bears and lions. And how did I do that? With the Lord's help. And then he concludes, when he goes up and faces off against the giant, he says, you come at me with a spear and with a sword. I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, God of Israel. So that's, what, that's what David holds up. Notice the difference there. What are you looking to? What criteria are you using uh, as you face? So you get this all the way through. So David, throughout his career, as he's leading up to becoming king, notice these things that come up. Whenever he has a success, the writer says the Lord was with him, and David acknowledges that. He acknowledges it particularly And his defeat of Goliath, but other places along the way as well. Yeah, I won. Why? Because God was with me. Because God strengthened my arm. Because God made our enemy uh, scared. Something like that. Whenever he's thinking about going into battle, almost every single time it says he seeks the Lord's advice first. He inquires of the Lord. Should I go up here? Should I go up there? Should I attack? Should I wait? He's asking God's advice guidance over and over again. Even when he's having difficulties with Saul, what does he do? He doesn't harm Saul. Why? Because Saul was anointed by God. And he respects God more than you know, worrying about his attitude about Saul. That's the most important thing. right? Uh, I, I, I mentioned uh, 2 Samuel 5 verse 12. He sees what he's doing. As he goes higher and higher in the ranks, as he becomes king, he sees that as something that God is doing not for his own sake, but for the sake of the nation. And then you know this famous story. As he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, he's putting God literally, physically, front and center for the nation in his capital. And it says that he's out dancing in front of it as it's coming into town. And one of his wives, the, the daughter of Saul, Nicole. She says, Oh, man, yeah, yeah. That was uh, quite a show you put on there today. David, you know, I thought you were the king. You look more like the king's jester, but that's okay. And, and David's response is, You know what? You might be right. But I think that the, the folks out there are going to be honored. And what's most important is God. I, I, if I have to make a fool of myself, if I have to look like the king's jester, in order to honor God, so be it. So be it. Because that's the most important thing. It's not how I look. It's how God looks. All right. See, in all of these ways, He's putting that up front. Okay. <coughs> Good. We're almost done. So there, there's a whole bunch more that that we could say here. I want to <coughs> wrap up with two or three things. Yeah, friend. Yeah. Um, So earlier I thought I heard you say, define uh, a man after God's own heart as obedience. Mm -hmm. But when I look at Saul and his disobediences, and then I think about David and all his, I think if I'm evaluating by any standard I ever hear people use, I'm going to choose Saul. David's a mess. I mean, he does some pretty horrible things. Well, later on. Okay, so, but, but the... But God doesn't snatch the kingdom away like he does to Saul. <laughs> no, and that's a that that's the 64000 dollars question with David is why does God not yeah. respond to David the way that he responded to Saul's indiscretions? Because in our minds, it looks like a deeper
1: problem. Right? But that would take another entire class. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, 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 I, that's I, yeah, acknowledge it. Just kind of in response to this question, I think the answer is the fact that Yes, David's life was a mess, and this was touched on in the keynote speaker. His life was a mess, but with every sin, he repented. Yeah. Yeah. That's, what David's, yeah. that's what a man after God's own heart is part of, is yes. somebody who, yes, acknowledges we sin and we do yeah. sin, but comes back to God in repentance. And my wife and I were talking about it, and when Nathan confronted him, he didn't, like the speaker said, he didn't say off with his head, he didn't try to justify his actions, he realized what he'd done. Mm-hmm and he repented immediately. Yeah. And so I think that's why he was a man God's heart, in spite of his sin. Yeah, yeah. It's,
0: it's not being sinless. It's not being perfect.
1: Yeah, But and, and do this. I,
0: I mentioned how Saul responded when he was confronted by Samuel. <clears throat> At first he said, oh, yeah, I did do the right thing. Oh, oh well, maybe the people, you know, he keeps trying to change the subject or change the target or whatever. But as you said, David, as soon as he's confronted, it's like, "You're right. right. No equivocating. No, yes, but." <laughs> he just accepts it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I think, and, and that says something about their hearts. That says something about them.
1: not that they're all,
0: not that they always make the right decision. But when they're confronted, they submit. Okay. A, okay. Now, here we are. Go to the very end of David's life. What? Here we are. 1 Kings 2. Believe it or not, the, the life of David actually spills over into kings a little bit. 1 Kings 2. They've just gone some machinations and gotten Solomon to be the successor to David, the one who's going to follow him on the throne. And now, boy, we could do a whole class on, on this scene about what David says to Solomon. Let's just focus on the, the first part here, the first few verses. And he says, let's remind you, Saul, uh, Solomon, let's remind you of the covenant promise that God made to me many years ago, that my throne, that my kingdom, my dynasty, my house will go on forever, right? Now what do you need to do, Solomon? What do you need to do? Be strong. Sounds a little bit like Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Remembering what the Lord has done for you, that the Lord has been with you. So he says, says, be strong. And secondly, (laughs) be a man. Ooh, I'd like for him to qualify. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Uh, in some ways Saul tried to be a man and made the wrong choices. So be a, in other words, be a stand-up guy. Right? Be a man about this. And in particular then, <coughs> observe the law of Moses. That's what it is. It's not to be your own man. It's to be God's man. So that's the advice on his deathbed that David has for for his son Solomon, All right? So that that's one thing to telling you. Um, now let's go back to Second Samuel chapter seven. All right, because I, I think, in, in my mind, uh, I mean you, we could bring in certain psalms, perhaps, but within the books of Samuel, where you particularly have David, I think in Second Samuel seven. You get uh, the words, the ideas, the ideals that a king should strive for in their relationship with God. In other words, how would you express the heart of a king that God is looking for? I think you get it in the prayer of David that starts in 2 Samuel 7 and verse eighteen. This is how he responds right away to God's promise of an eternal dynasty. See, one of the things that God has said to him is, "Your, you know, your seed will build a house for him. I will be his father. He will be my son. He will be my child." Mm. There's a whole bunch in that. My goodness. And then he says, "Now." He might mess up. Guess what? People do that. People do that. Right? David is gonna do that. But he said, and so he says, when he does that, I will punish him. But I will not stop loving him. Mm. Okay. So how does David respond? Well, first of all, just to summarize it, what he says is is that you should realize that this dynasty is not being founded on the basis of David's righteousness. David never makes a claim to that. He knows that ain't possible. Instead, it is based on God's merciful, gracious choice. Why did he choose David? Why not? He's as good as anybody else to choose. But the deal is he did choose David. And that makes all the difference is that God makes that choice. So David, I'll just give you a few lines from this, this really, really important thing. He starts off by saying who am I? You know, Jean Valjean, I'm 24601. Who am I? And who is my house? What is my house? That you are bringing us up to this point. There's no reason for this. We're no different than anybody else. Mm. Why choose us? Why choose me? One line he says there in verse 20 is, he says, You know me. (laughs) I <laughs> said, yeah, wow. And so I was like, and in spite of that, you're still doing this. Are you crazy? Oh, you know me. And the fact that you're still choosing me, wow, why are you doing that? He says, only it's for the sake of your work, just because you said so. And because you wanted to, because of your heart. Literally, according to your heart. That's exactly the same phrase in Hebrew as. A man after his own heart. A man according to his heart. Why did he choose David? Because he wanted to. Why did he want to? Because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That's the way God is. And don't you forget it. Don't you ever start thinking, you deserve this. Okay? And so, wow. And then David says, yeah, but this is just like you, God. I mean, look, you picked Israel. For goodness sake, if you're going to pick a country to lead the, lead the world, don't pick Israel. It's a small country, piddly little thing, off in the corner somewhere, and you're going to pick these people, and you're going to help them, and guess what? They're still not going to trust you. They're going to gripe about things for years, but you're still going to pick them. You're going to redeem them from Egypt and make them your people. Wow. Wow! What great love God shows here. And so then the the second half of this, starting in verse 25, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, he says, therefore, therefore, over and over again, because, and only because, you say so. Only because you're going to bless this nation. And and the only reason you're going to bless this house is because you said you were. So I'm asking you, God, bless my house. And the only reason that I have any idea or any gumption to do so is just because you've already said you're going to do it. So God, I'm praying to you, please just do what you've already said you're going to do. He didn't say, because I've been a good boy scout all these years, because I've prayed to you several times before, because I've been righteous so far. None of that. It's totally because of God's mercy. The end. And that's the attitude that the kings are supposed to have. And that's the attitude that we as leaders are supposed to have. <clears throat> now, we got about two or three minutes. So what other thoughts does this spark you, Joel? That one verse that said, as I took it from Saul, yeah, I will not take your love from David, but as I took it. That implies that uh, while all the choosing and the grace comes from God, Saul did have a chance. Saul had the love of God and lost it. Yeah, yeah. and didn't respond well. Yeah. Uh, also look at Jeroboam. There's even a stronger statement made there. At the end of 1 Kings 11, uh, I think it's is it Abijah or I think it's Ahijah is a prophet who comes to Jeroboam and basically God says I will establish your house in exactly the same way that I established David's house, but only if you will be as faithful to me as he has been. So, so, so yeah. While God does the choosing, we can still do the losing. <laughs> Some way it. Yeah. 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 Now, but but once He's made the choice here, He says it's going to be an eternal choice. Yeah. He sticks with it. Now, sometimes that means you remove certain kings from the throne and put other ones in their place, but they still got to come from this line. See, what I'd really like to know is, I'd like to be able to to go and talk to people like in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, for example. 150, 200 years after the fall of Jerusalem. How are they hearing this eternal promise? How are they hearing the promises that God made to Abraham in light of their current situation? Somehow, they still say God has not broken His word. Wow. That's faith. All right, something else. Something. Else. Well, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. We got another day tomorrow.